Filmwax Radio wants to thank James Oxford for subscribing to our Patreon account. For as little as $3 a month, you too can become a patron of the show. Just go to patreon.com slash filmwaxradio and support what we're doing here. Thank you so much. On to the show. Hi, everybody. It's Adam Shartoff, your host of Film Wax Radio. It's Friday, July 30th, 2021. This is episode number 679 of the podcast. And we have uh, two segments on this episode, both dedicated to brand new Sundance successes. I guess you could say success stories. First one here is a brand new guest to the podcast, the filmmaker Braden King, who some years ago had a success with a movie called Here. He's back with a new one called The Evening Hour, which is written by Elizabeth Palmore based on a novel by Carter Sickles. And then that film is opening today, Friday, July 30th. And then we're going to bring on the editor of another film, a film wax friend, Michael Taylor, with a new feature called Nine Days. We're going to actually have the director on soon, but Nine Days is also premiering today, Friday, July 30th. So we're we're going to go first into my conversation with Braden. And I should mention by something of a disclaimer that I know Braden. Our kids years ago went to school together for several years. They were in the same class. I knew I knew Braden and his family. So I've been looking forward to inviting him on the podcast and finally had the occasion to do so with this new film. Again, it's called The Evening Hour. Cole Freeman, played by Philip Ettinger of First Reformed, maintains an uneasy equilibrium in his declining Appalachian mining town, looking after the old and infirm in the community while selling their excess painkillers to local addicts to help make ends meet. But when his old friend Terry Rose, played by Cosmo Jarvis, returns with dangerous plans that threaten the fragile balance Cole has crafted, his world and identity are thrown into disarray. The film also stars Lily Taylor, friend of the podcast, and who has been on some years ago. The evening hour will be opening today at the IFC Center in New York City. On the 6th of August, it will be opening at the Monica Film Center in Santa Monica, California, also at the Neon in Dayton, Ohio, at the SIF Cinema in Seattle, Washington, and at the Avalon in Washington, D.C. You should check the Strand Releasing website, strandreleasing.com, for more details. Also, of course, it will be playing, you know, streaming on iTunes, Amazon, and other platforms. Again, check strandreleasing.com for more details. Here now, my conversation with filmmaker Braden King, only on Film Wax Radio. I got something for you. 
Yes, sir. I don't know why they still scribe. That can't bother me for ages. Thank you. I know what you did, Cole. Whatever you do. I'm cool, man. I think you got some wrong information. Good, thank you. Good, good. How are you doing? I'm doing well overall. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, how how did, uh, was Lily casting through uh, your casting director, or was that? I mean, I know you used I know you used one you're very happy about because she, obviously with Philip Ettinger and the others. Yeah, uh, Allison and I had a <clears throat> Allison Estrin and I had a really great collaboration, very creative collaboration, mm-hmm. and she was really kind of a certainly a right hand in the casting, but also a sounding board for, you know, her role probably expanded a little bit beyond that. We talked a lot about story and tone and kind of weaving, you know, the, the goal of that cast or the sort of like manifesto or the intent behind the way we cast the film was to try to put together an ensemble of really solid actors who could also like weave themselves into that landscape and not be too popped out in front of it. Um, right. <laughs> It's some of the, well, it, it, you're plainly from the reading materials that, you know, the press materials, you started with the landscape. I mean, it's, it's, it's like in every, every bit of your descriptions of how you went up, you know, your, in terms of your uh, process for this particular film, how did you find, um, just take a baby step backwards. How did you come across the novel? It was a, uh, it was originally a novel mm-hmm. written by Carter Sickle. Carter yeah. Sickles, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And um, so who put that book in your hands? The book came to me in a very straightforward kind of, you know, film business way in some respects. Um, it was on, <clears throat> it was about a year or two after my last feature here was released and a producer named Tom Stephars mm-hmm. in uh, who... Uh, anyway, a producer named Tom Scapehart sent me the novel. It's something he was a fan of here and thought it was something that I might be interested in. And at the time, I was okay. sort of casting about, looking for the next thing and writing a little bit. And the book kind of jumped into my hands, and I got to about page nine and sort of was like, found myself really intrigued. I mean, it's sort of the, I, I almost feel like this part of the story is a little <laughs> almost cliche or something. I mean, I think I finished the book in an afternoon. And what struck me about it it's is exactly it's a 1700 page novel which is- no, not exactly but uh it is quite it's a lot more expansive than what went into the film i think um you know we oh, need to okay. revisit we we need to revisit the idea of turning it into a like series <laughs> or something but um you know what spoke to me about it is some of the things that you're mentioning it there was a very strongly rendered sense of place even though dove creek the town that's in the book is sort of a composite 
um, and not actually a real place. Um, and there it's was Appalachia, Appalachia, as they say, Appalachia, yeah, yeah. Appalachia. Um, and but it was such a nuanced and complex portrait of a region and the people within it that was so different from anything I'd come across about that part of our country that that's what really drew me in. It was sort of the combination of, I like going places that haven't had a lot of film shot in them before. So I knew that like sort of going to the heart of Appalachia and shooting in like Southeastern Kentucky or Western or Southern West Virginia was gonna have a sort of expeditionary aspect to it. That's mm -hmm. something I really like in the films that I make. But then I also was very intrigued by the sort of complex and nuanced portrait of the people within the region that I felt like I hadn't seen anywhere else. Um, Can you define it or? Well, it's just, you know, I think that there's a lot of, um, Appalachia is an incredibly creative sort of like, I'm going to construct my own life uh, kind of culture in a lot of ways. That's so much more, complicated than maybe like the one dimensional portraits and pictures we've seen on the news and in other kind of mediated renderings of the region, especially over the last like six years or so during the Trump era, you know, there's so much beneath the surface of like, it is not a monolithic, you know, I don't know, conservative bastion that you might think just from a lot of the pop culture and the news that we get all the time. And, and the people are so much more interesting and creative and smart and complicated than, than what you see. And I was fascinated by that, you know, mm -hmm. and when you marry that with <clears throat> the way in which the book sort of examines masculinity within that region and within that culture mm -hmm. and the sort of, um, you know, Carter, has been very open about this, but he was transitioning as he was writing the book. And I think in a lot of ways it kind of functioned as like an examination of how to be a man for him on a lot of levels. I don't want to put words in his mouth or speak for him, but he's, there's some beautiful essays he's written about this um, that I just kind of felt like this was something that had some depth to it in a way that I hadn't really come across and had the potential to be the kind of project I'm really drawn to that would have a process that had a lot of intrinsic value to it for everyone involved, like going to Appalachia, working with the community, exploring some of the themes of masculinity in the way that we were going to be doing it. Um, you know, all of that spoke to me as like, okay, I'm on board with this and I'm willing to dedicate a couple of years of my life to making sure this film gets made. It almost sounds like you're like approached it like a sociologist on some level, not to get too cerebral or academic about it. Right. But in a, on a level, I'm wondering, like, you read the book, it touched you obviously very much, you, you were motivated, inspired, and then you had to, of course, do your, do your reconnaissance work, you, mm -hmm. you went there, I imagine you were just got very, very excited. And then yeah, for sure, <laughs> just from those people you're describing and the landscape as you described it, and then you're like, oh, yeah, I guess we have to make the movie too. <laughs> those are those are those uh we had to hire cast hollywood people and uh, yeah whatever but uh um but it seemed like you already got this this uh amazing experience even before you you start a roll camera well look i mean that's exactly right you describe it uh, you've used the exact words that i've used to describe 
in some respects how I make films. I mean, like you know, I started here too. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while since I've seen here, but here, I, but I also remember even, certain. Yeah. You know, my film before that, was a kind of lyrical nonfiction film made in the Aleutian Islands in Alaska, on, on right? There. And I and look, I mean, we spend so much of our lives on these movies that if the process doesn't, the day to day process doesn't have a great deal of sort of life experience and value to it, that's all you're left with at the end of the day. I mean, hopefully, you make a a good, beautiful film for sure. And that's the goal and everything. But part of realizing that is the intent with which you approach it. And that bleeds out into like, how do you collaborate with the community? How do you inter- How do you collaborate with the actual landscape? You know, how do you ask the Hills what they're trying to tell you and render that correctly on the, in the frame and give, you know, the, the audience an opportunity to kind of wander around within the world that these characters inhabit. I mean, that all really filters into, yeah. Um, and there is a certain degree of like anthropology involved. I mean, I, I always love that vendors quote about like all films being documentaries, you know, and it's yeah, 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 sure. really true. Like you're capturing yeah. things that are going to, at least depending on how you make films, you know, if the it's all story is written, the story is like exists, right. Cause you created, there's a story, whether you created it, you evolved the story that, that maybe Carter had uh, started uh, and then, then you shoot it. So you are, you know, somebody said this the other day to me and then you're shooting the story. So in a way it is a documentary because you're just shooting. Right. The story I mean, with, when we were making, and, you know, this is going to get very heady and academic, but there's a there's an extent to which, like, I felt like the filmmaking process was like a map making process. Like we were on an expedition mm-hmm. rendering this land location and story in a certain way. And in, in many res- and, you know, that was a even much more conceptual film than the evening hour. But I almost felt like we were making a map. You know, it's like we're mapping the territory with our cameras <laughs> with these characters running through it so i mean it's um it's absolutely part of the process and something i think about a lot i mean you know 50 percent of cinema at least in my view is about experience i mean there's storytelling and drama and you know this is a big part of the endeavor but you also want at least i do and the films i love the most kind of allow you to wander around in their worlds and you want the audience to be able to have uh, um you know an experience and to do that you have to kind of move past you know, on, I guess on the far end of the spectrum, like just recording people saying and doing things, you know, there's a whole other realm of sort of aesthetic intent and musicality and rendering of a world and a location that comes into play. Well, I have get to the kernel of the real, real truth behind uh, Braden's film that you've answered and then second question what was the budget i'm just kidding i didn't i didn't (laughs) (laughs) i was about to hit like leave meeting (laughs) when you when you uh when you have uh like a real vision for your story which it seems like you kind of developed in this case quite well because um you know it's it the film is sort of is connecting with people, you know, and it, once you have that and you know, you, you're kind of convey it for yourself, like, okay, this, the finished product is essentially, I don't mind dogs barking. Is that? Okay. Yeah. It's yeah, Sally. That's no, dogs have, <laughs> there. Are a lot of been a lot of dogs on this show. I'll see if I can get her up here in a second when she comes back. Sure. Yeah. That'd be great. She's decided that this is the time to play. This is her. Oh, uh, I love that. Is that a wired hair terrier? Part, is that she's, like part wired hair terrier? Part she, what? 
she's like, like a mutt. She's, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think she's Terrier. part of like Chihuahua. Even. Chihuahua. I, I see the, no, there's a Chihuahua. And it looks like, yeah, for sure. The ears are completely. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> she's adorable. What's her name? So her name's Sally. Sally, the dog. Yeah. yeah. She's named after Sally Lou. She's named after Sally Timms from the Mekons and Lou Reed. Oh, my gosh. I did a thing on <laughs> yeah. the Mekons. Yeah, I had I had one of the Mekons. Uh, show. Uh, you know, I'm running John, John Langford, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. He did yeah. the show with the with the director of that mm -hmm. do documentary with Joe Angelo. That's right. Yeah. You yeah. were there. No kidding. <laughs> we did it at Film Forum's offices. Uh, oh, OK. It's got to be seven or at least seven, eight years. Yeah. Ago. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I've been doing this a long time. <clears throat> Sorry, I completely interrupted your question. No, no. I was going to just say, well, you know, does it matter? Like if you convey something authentically, this is a very another heady question. I, I don't know. As, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about like, does it really is as long as it works for you successfully, what people get from it? is you know they may get something very different as, as an experience as a viewer or an audience sure does it matter yeah i mean you know part of the <laughs> part of the, the you know the job is to sort of take all these ideas we're talking about and put them into a form that you can kind of give to someone else and allow them to experience it and if that's right. not connecting um i can't you know the words like failure are almost a little too harsh but like well, I think that's the end goal, you know, and it's not, I'm, you know, we're not making these things, or at least I'm not just for my own uh, yeah. pleasure. And, and, you know, you are trying to share something um, with an audience. And, well, and yeah, but I mean, you know, you can make a drama and then somebody could say that was one of the best comedies I've ever seen. I mean, obviously that's an extreme. Sure. I mean, there's an extent that's an extreme, to which, but yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just saying like, if for, it could still work really successfully, I'm just wondering as an art, as an artist yourself, as a storyteller, you know, if, well, if what I, people get from it is what you're trying to convey, does it really make a difference at the end if they're somehow moved or changed or, you know? I think we all struggle to this with some extent, depending on how strong, let's say, your commercial sensibilities are. I mean, I think there's people that are incredibly gifted at making work that, you know, connects very broadly with a lot of, you know, huge Hollywood movies and things like that that connect with wide swaths of people. And I think they might be able to talk more eloquently about... True how they go about that, you know, and that's a big part of the endeavor for them and what the goal is and what they're trying to do. Um, you know, kind of ironically in some ways, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. Like I, I sort of looked at the evening hour and thought like, okay, cool. Here's a movie that allows me to do all the things I love in terms of location, experience, atmosphere, tone, photography, music. Um, but it has a reasonably high horsepower narrative engine under the hood you know so there's like a, a story here that clicks along and moves and like it was in a it was an opportunity to like flex some new muscles in terms of balancing different storylines and working with a broad ensemble of actors rather than two actors like in my last movie with Ben yeah. Foster and Lou Nazaval so all of that was really interesting as a challenge I think that um you know you can't maybe there's people you know maybe some people are so skilled at this that they can sort of control how people are going to react to it you can't always predict that you don't know you also don't know how a certain thing is going to like meet the zeitgeist you know you don't know we start these things a few years earlier and like when they come out and what the timing is and what the zeitgeist is looking for in terms of a story whether there's a global pandemic or not like all of that is outside of our control but i do think that there's a almost a danger in um 
like sort of, I don't know, I don't, I'm trying to think of the right words, like an attitude or like working, making things, things that are deeply meaningful to you, or let's say, I'm going to jump topics here a little bit, but like autobiographical films or things that are based on things that you've lived have a second layer of danger in them. And that like you, the maker has a lot of personal catharsis wrapped up in the making. Of a piece. The stakes are higher, potentially, emotionally. Like, we all kind of create, I would argue, that we all kind of create whatever we create, whether you're an architect or a, you know, a, a carpenter or, you know, you're involved in creative endeavor. Like, you're sort of, on some level, working yourself out, right? Like, by making these things. If you're writing, you're kind of working yourself out. It's kind of, DeLillo called it focused thought, like when you're writing a novel and you're consciously or unconsciously, you're sort of creating harmony for yourself yeah and if you stop there and don't sort of obsess about whether or not your personal catharsis is communicating to an audience it can be problematic Hmm. sometimes you get lucky and those two things are in parallel but sometimes something can be incredibly meaningful to you a certain image let's say or like oh i shot in this alley and that's where this amazing thing happened to me but no one else looking at that outside the four corners of the screen has any relationship to it. And that's something that I think about a lot. And it's tricky because things do inevitably become very personally meaningful to you. And you have to kind of back up and figure out whether that's also communicating something to the people that are outside the bubble of creation. Mm. Speaking of which, this is sort of connected, Ben, because of the timing of this, it came out in the, it's, it was, it was, premiered festival-wise at Sundance 2020, mm-hmm. which was, of course, just about a month or so before the pandemic. Did you have a, any other opportunity? I mean, obviously you were there and you got to meet Sundance audiences, but that's a very specific type of audience, I assume. Sure. Uh, did you have a chance to show this movie to audiences? The film premiered almost simultaneously at Sundance in Rotterdam. Um, uh-huh. those schedules, I guess over the last year or two have become, they overlap now. And part of that, I think Sundance went a little later last year. I can't remember exactly how that happened, but I wasn't able to go over to Rotterdam because I right. mean, it's Sundance. Phil Edinger did go over there. I think Cosmo went over as well. Um, so we were kind of getting reports back, <laughs> which was sort of fun. Um, uh, I the I didn't you know because yeah. of the pandemic like I didn't right. end up traveling too much. We did got, a lot of virtual yeah. festivals. Um, the right. film was at Torino. We did you know it, did I, they have I, like virtual Q and A's or yeah? I, mean, I, I was getting up at like five thirty in the morning to do some of the press for you know right. yeah the European festivals. Um, we were at the drive-in in Mill Valley. There were other drive-ins around the country, but it was an odd experience, yeah. you know, for sure. Like you're. Um, kind of used to I had sort of blocked out a lot of the year just assumed that I'd be you know on the circuit for a lot of last year and then all of a sudden you're not and at the beginning it was kind of funny because it sort of dovetailed the pandemic kind of dovetailed with like the post premiere I don't want to say crash exactly but there's usually a period after you finish one of these things where you kind of just stare at the wall for a little while you know and have to right. clear yourself out or some directors <laughs> will go mountain climbing or they'll go on a hike on the Appalachian Trail or you have to like clear your head for the last couple of years and so at first I thought well this is actually like kind of okay timing because I'm a little spent and I don't and then it got into like month two or three and it was like oh wait this yeah, is, yeah, yeah. we're in here for the long haul so it, it was 
you know, strange, but at the same time, it was hard to be too self-pitying about it or anything because everybody was in the same boat. It was like, well, this is what's happening. So let's figure out how to take care of the film as best we can, given the circumstances. And I think, I feel incredibly fortunate that we got the, you know, in-person premieres on the big screen. And there's kind of been this Rip Van Winkle period and that the film's going to be in theaters. It just feels like it's, it's really feels very, very lucky and fortunate. We're very thankful for it. Yes. Thanks to Strand releasing, right. Who uh, also I think distributed uh, here. Mm -hmm. Uh, The film it's called the evening hour and it's opening in theaters Well, it's opening at the IFC Center in New York City on July 30th. And then I know a week later, August 6th at the Lemley in in Los Angeles. Uh, Is there, is it also, I mean, it's got to be opening at a bunch of other theaters, but those are there. They mentioned those because they're kind of the. Sure. Those are the two. And then it goes wider after those two. Oh, so then it will uh, spread um, on the national level. Mm -hmm. That's good. I mean, there's other, I know there's, there's sort of openings throughout the month of August and probably into September. Yeah. Very good. And I, I guess there, does, is there a website or strand releasing? Maybe we'll have a place where people can, where, where people can go check out where. Sure. Yeah. Strandreleasing.com would be the place. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. put that link at the end. I'll put the trailer at the beginning. Great. <laughs> the link at the end. Make sure people know where to find it. It's such a it's such a great film. Uh, these are you you know from from I've, I've just seen your the narrative films, and I've seen some of the stuff you I think some of the stuff you've done at home. Oh right. In our post Waldorf time, <laughs> are they are you guys still at Waldorf, Waldorf by the way? Uh Jonas. Because uh, oh, they is, would be no, no. It ends at no. They're grade. they're out. They, yeah, yeah, they right. ended at eighth grade. So Jonas is going to be a senior. My son Jonas is going to be right. a senior well, yes, at I, uh, I Berkeley Carroll, and then um, Oliver's about to be a sophomore at Calhoun. True. Yeah. 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 No, I, we've got one, 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 one ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> going to be a senior. Um, pretty shocking stuff. I know it's amazing, right? Yeah, it, and, uh, and very lovely at the same time. Yeah, we'll see these guys. Yeah. It's been terrific. I'm glad we were finally be able to pull pull this off. We just mentioned a couple of the other key. Well, we mentioned the cast. We already said uh, Philip Ettinger plays um, plays the the lead. Uh, yeah, Cole Freeman. Cole is, Freeman, and then his uh-huh. his sort of reintroduced to his estranged mother. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Ruby, maybe. which is Ruby, yeah. which is played. She's played by Lily. We met, I'm just because we mentioned her at the beginning and you know she's more of a supporting role in this but i think it's nice because she kind of is helping him sort of get back to uh getting his north north star she's his north star in a way uh, or something like that where he's lost i think on some level he's obviously lost his way it's fair to say sure and Mm -hmm. he sort of kind of just needs to get (laughs) this is sort of (laughs) How, how bad it can get and dramatic it can get before finding your way back. Who shot the film again? Well, I mean, just to round out the cast a little bit, um, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, please do. Cosmo Jarvis. Cosmo, you mentioned. Plays, you know, uh, a sort of old high school buddy. Who comes back. Of Coles, it comes back to town and kind of upsets the equilibrium he's got going yeah. there. Um, Tess Harper plays his grandmother, Dorothy, Dorothy which was... Don't know her. 
deeply meaningful to me um, and kind oh, of yeah. amazing to show up on set and have someone from Tender Mercy. You know, it was, it was, it was lovely to see her. Uh, yeah. Anytime. She's, she's a dream. I think we're going to get her out for the LA opening, which would be great. Um, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, well, you'll now finally, of course, with those openings, you'll have such a great time. Finally yes. With not only with, with people who will have, be able to see the an evening, the evening hour rather, and be able to you know talk to you afterwards about it, but They'll be just happy to be going back to theater. I know, I know. And we're bringing the movie back to Harlan, Kentucky at the end of August, which is... Yeah, crazy. right, where you shot in Harlan oh, County, Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. Of course, famous uh, in, in movie history, of course. Yeah. Um, so anyway, to, to, yeah, sorry. to round that out, no, but Stacey Martin plays mm-hmm. one of Cole's love interests, Charlotte. Carrie Bechet, uh is a, is sort of another. And then Mark Menchaca is kind of the, you know, the bad guy in town. Right, right. Um, He's and, very good. Uh, you know, he's amazing. Ross yeah. Partridge, who I love. Oh, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot Ross. Randy, <laughs> Ross is a friend. The, the cop, and um, and then Ashley Shelton, who's from Knoxville, Tennessee, gave an amazing performance as one of Cole's co-workers. Um, and Frank Hoyt Taylor, who was a real dream to kind of work with, amazing character actor who's been around forever and lives in the region. Uh, okay, his grandfather, you know, so. Um, I hope I, ha- I don't think I've forgotten anybody, but, um, <laughs> you know, know, it was a, terrifying. It was, it's a big cast and, and, um, oh, and I, oh, I do know who I forgot. Um, Michael Trotter, who played Reese, I think just gave a, you know, completely amazing kind of breakout performance as one of Cole's friends and sort of is the Obi-Wan Kenobi of the movie in some ways. And, yeah. You know, going back to what I was saying about like idiosyncratic renderings of the region and complex characters, like he's right up there, you know, and I, I yes. think what Michael did with that role was um, just astounding. Uh, Declan Quinn shot the film. You know, I know right. you asked about that, uh, you know, amazing, almost historic cinematographer, worked with Jonathan Demme for a long time, shot Leaving Las Vegas. Like that was just an absolute and just a dream of a person. Um, you know, one of the kindest, most creative uh, people I've ever worked with and really learned a lot from. Um, I bet. And then uh, I edited the film with Andy Hafitz and Joe Krings and worked with my longtime collaborator friend and composer Michael Krasner along with Tim Rattilli who has a band called Caliphone and uh, a group they have called Boxed Ensemble and that's a rotating group of musicians that we've used over almost 30 years now to score films um, and in this case included people like William Tyler who recently scored Kelly Reichert's First Cow, Shazad Ismaili who's an amazing musician here in New York and has a studio called Figure Eight where we recorded in Brooklyn Mm-hmm. um shazad by the way just popped up on the new bob dylan uh live thing that just dropped he's playing with bob so that, that was pretty cool and then um jim white from dirty three and cat power and um you know oh, yeah. uh will oldham and a lot of other contemporary groups um you know is also on that soundtrack and then there's just an amazing uh kind of soundtrack that features songs from like songs ohio and joan shelley and um uh you know uh darren hickard who was a discovery kind of from the region and um you know music's a huge part of these films for me and i'm i couldn't be happier with the the music that we have in this one so um you know it's a dream team as far as i'm concerned sure and you co-wrote with elizabeth palmore was the screenwriter on the adaptation and i'm glad you brought her up she did an absolutely beautiful job um we collaborated very deeply she uh, you know, was the screenwriter um, and did an amazing job of kind of distilling um, Carter's beautiful and very expansive novel down into something that we could 
uh, you know, make a movie out of. Right. That's the trick, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Finding the cinematic way in and then the seed of what, you know, the heart of the story at the same time and yeah, making it all work. It's true. Again, coming out in New York City at the IFC Center on the 30th of July. And then again in LA at uh, Lemley. And we'll put the link for Strand Releasing's website where you can see where it's playing near you. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. It's been great. Great Yeah. All right. Enjoy the rainy day. And uh, hopefully I'll see you soon. Or at least it is here in Brooklyn. (laughs) Yeah. Or come up. I'm up just in the Hudson Valley. All right. Great. Okay. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. I've always appreciated our little arrangement. We aren't the same. Go find your pal. A spring remembers. How much longer do you think we got this in us? I get caught with anything and I'm done. Do you understand what Everett is capable of? It wasn't supposed to be like this. When it breaks down, mistakes get high. You gotta find a way to end this. I know. I'm always glad to bring on Michael Taylor. He's an old friend of mine. This is Michael's fourth time on the podcast. It's now an annual tradition to bring him on, and he always updates me about the films he's been working on and he brings with him an enthusiasm which I, I always appreciate because I know he loves these films he works on and he is having the time of his life and um, that's very you know it's encouraging Nine Days is the latest film in Michael's filmography of editing work and um, Nine Days is the latest film Michael has edited and again it opens today and it concerns Will played by actor Winston Duke who spends his days in a remote outpost watching the live point of view on TVs of people going about their lives until one subject perishes, leaving a vacancy for a new life on Earth. Soon, several candidates, unborn souls, arrive at wills to undergo tests determining their fitness, facing oblivion when they are deemed unsuitable. But Will soon faces his own existential challenge in the form of free-spirited Emma, played by Zazie Beats, a candidate who is not like the others, forcing him to turn within and reckon with his own tumultuous past. Fueled by an unexpected power, he discovers a bold new path forward in his own life. This film, Nine Days, also stars Benedict Wong, Tony Hale, Bill Skarsgård, David Ryesdahl, and Ariana Oritz. It's directed by Edson Oda, who is going to be on the show soon. Here now, my conversation with Nine Days editor Michael Taylor, only here on Film Wax Radio. You are being considered for the amazing opportunity of life. You'll have the chance to be born in a fruitful environment where you can grow, develop, and accomplish. Am I dead? I wouldn't say you're alive or dead. 
Are you the boss? I would say a cog in the wheel. <laughs> How long is this process? If you make it until the end. Nine days. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I like the Woodstock uh, t-shirt. Yeah. Trying to uh, fit into the local vibe here. Nothing does better than wearing a t-shirt of where you're from because, you know, all locals always wear t-shirts. I wear in New York. I wear t-shirts to say New York City <laughs> all the time. Well, it reminds um, me like how huge a campaign I Love New York was back when we were kids. That's true. That that was big. Well, we're up in, my wife and I are up here in Truro, Massachusetts, which is uh, where I was the last time I talked to you a year ago in August. You really need to get out more. I know. Oh. Since, uh, since uh, that time in August, I, I did finally return to New York in, in October. Uh-huh. And I was there until December last year. And then I was in the Los Angeles for pretty much... The next six months. From, Where were you? Well, I was staying in the Hollywood area with my wife. She was on a movie with David O. Russell that she was uh. designing. Uh, one that had been originally going to be up in Boston at the beginning of last year, but got delayed by COVID. And, and it got delayed nine months, but it also ended up in a different city. Yes. yes. Thank you. Um, the segment of our conversation will be about nine days. And, you know, I, was, I did reach out or they reached back or I contacted the publicist saying I'm interested in, uh, you know, in bringing on folks from the film. Well, you know, I'll, uh, I'll write Jason, uh, one of the producers and see if he can help. All right. I'll yeah. I mean, uh, to you. yeah, I, 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 I mean, I'm probably, they're still probably organizing it, but you know, it sounds, if they got a lot of people, then I'm going to get, you know, it's okay. It's not, be, I, I have such good shows. I don't, I don't no, know. No, 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 but, yeah, anyway, but it would be nice to be able to, uh, Adam, well, we, yeah, we can use whatever help you can provide for this yeah. film, honestly, because the thing is, um, I know like Edson lives in LA, the director, Edson Oda. Uh, right, right. And um, I guess Tony Hale lives in LA as well. Right. Because right. they're going to do a couple of Q and A's uh, the first weekend. Um, I, I guess, depending on when you put this on the air, you can, we can let people know that the film opens in New York city and Los Angeles on July 30th, which is nine days from today. So the film opens in nine days and then it opens. Well, in yeah, I'll, put, I'll post this. Maybe I, yeah. I should just post this today and then we can use this as a, a that, me- mechanism. I can make a clip saying you can, nine days is so, uh, such a great movie. I mean, you know, it's, uh, well, I'm so glad it was on my radar and that, you know, I got a chance to see it. You've seen it now, right? What yeah. did you, what did you yeah. think of it? No, I, <laughs> I enjoyed it, of course. No, of but course. I, what, I, what I wanted to so, say is I think with a movie like this, it does have such a large cast. But besides for, you know, does it? Um, well, it does because you've got and you, and they're all stars in their own realm of filmmaking. Like Winston Duke has a huge following. Marvel, um, Marvel, you know, from Black Panther. Uh, but he was also in Us, that movie Us. Right. And Zazie has a following from Deadpool, but also she was in Joker. She and, was in Joker. She was the neighbor who he yeah. thinks he falls in love. Is in a relationship yeah, has, with. <laughs> there's an imaginary thing going on there with yeah. her and. Um, and then, of course, Tony Hale has his whole uh, life Veep. with Veep, Veep and Arrested, Arrested Development. Development. Yeah. Benedict Wong has been in Doctor Strange and He's Avengers also movies. He and Winston have worked together, right? They've worked they, together. Do they have scenes in the... I, in, uh... you know, I, 
I don't know if they do. I'll have to check. Um, I'm not much of a Marvel expert myself. I Neither. have to confess. Yeah. Um, and then Bill Skarsgård sort of in his own franchise, which is the It movies. You know, he's Pennywise. So, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he plays Pennywise. So all of these people have, in their own individual realm, huge followings. And right. any one of them could actually uh, frontline a movie, lead a movie. And so it's like sort of having... You know, and I think what I found so interesting about working with them as actors, as uh, as an editor working with them, was I certainly was able to overcome any prejudices that I might have had about, oh, these people are in comic book movies. Because oh. it was like, I, I'm telling you, I'll stay, I'll say this for probably a while, best cast I've ever had. Never had a cast as good as these actors to work with day day by day, and which made the movie so much fun to work with. And, and then, of course, as as you've seen the film now, uh, maybe we should tell people a little bit about what, what the film. Yeah, is I was going to ask you to. Let we, so why don't I start? You interrupt me. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm sorry. But right in a right. Well, actually, you could probably even do a better job. But this is a very almost experimental concept mm-hmm. where. It's a straight dramatic film. However, there's a, uh, I guess, Winston Duke plays a guy who, whose job it is to interview potential new beings. Well, they're the souls, yeah. right? They're, they're the souls. embodiment of yeah. souls. Yeah. But yeah, they look like people, you know, and they're played right. by actors. They look like human beings, but in fact, they're souls. They don't exist and I think that's established fairly clearly in dialogue right near the beginning of the film. It's going to be a series of tests. So we're not getting anything in What? Yeah. So no, 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 and, no. And, the, and the, no. where he li- is physically is sort of uh, this uh, sort of nebulous. You're not really sure. It's again, everything is a representation of reality, but you don't really know, but he's in this house and he, in the middle of a, some sort of uh, desert scape or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. I mean, he's right. Well, I mean, it's funny, you know, again, on a film, probably with a larger budget than ours, that whole house would have been CGI on the outside, as would definitely the background be the uh-huh. desert. But in fact, that's the great salt plains uh, outside of Salt Lake City in Utah. Okay. So this beautiful natural place that looks exactly, we ended up, you know, we just went there and filmed and, you know, the mountains were there. So you were on the, the salt set. Flats you were on the set. As you well, you that. see, what we had a set in Salt Lake City of the interior of the house, and so which, of course, was made production very easy, and that we were mainly in that one house the whole time, pretty much. Um, and then for the scenes outside the house, we actually had a replica of the facade of the house, the front, just like you would have in an old-time Western. You only see the house from the front, on the outside there's no yeah. house there it's just a piece of wood with a door but it you know there is a scene later on in the movie where some of the characters have dinner together outside and again on some other movies that might have been on a set but that was right there in the desert right by right in the middle of wilderness and uh it just i think what's interesting about the movie is it it it, it posits an imaginary world but it uses r- completely real life elements just arranged in a way that you're not used to seeing them arranged, which gives a feeling of the uncanny and of the of supernatural to something that actually is quite real and is in front of your face, if that, if that makes any sense. And, you know, uh, again, without giving anything away, 
what this character Winston does do, do, he's like the interviewer. He's in charge of the place. Um, he puts these candidates through a number of psychological and emotional tests to essentially determine if who he thinks has the greatest chance of surviving Earth um, and benefiting from being born. Because only, you know the way the laws of this particular universe work, out of these five candidates, only one of them can actually be born, and the others will just disappear. And uh, which, of course, is very sad because you get to know these people over the course of the movie, right. but there's they, only going to be one winner. And they're all very eager to become people. Oh, yes. Which, you which know, is, they, I, you're right. And that's something that you really feel. I'm glad you pointed that out because, you know, they all have moments, especially when it starts to dawn upon right. who are not going to win, that they may not make it. Right. That they really wanted all they wanted more than anything, you know, and I would say on earth, although that's a, a phrase, I guess, but all they ever wanted was to be born and to see well, what it's a good like phrase to be born on earth. Yeah. Right. Being, being, yeah. They born want on, be earth. on earth. Yeah. Uh, and, it's and, and, um, and the eagerness and, and lack of call it confidence or, or, or self-esteem or whatever is exactly what sabotages potentially sabotages them. So, in a, you know, they, because he's looking for somebody who's going to, like you said before, survive. Well, exactly. Or, you know, you know. The, it's that, no, but it's, that's exactly true. You know, just the very characters that we might find endearing or we might enjoy in a person are things that Winston might see as a win- as a weakness. His character's name, Will. He might say, this person isn't going to be able to make it in the field that they want because of this personality aspect. They just they're too, they're too and they're too full of love if such a thing is possible or they're they're just too vulnerable right or they're just too romantic right. and he's looking for someone who you know might fit a, a more narrow uh definition of what it is to be a human being but could be a in his view a successful one because he's had some disappointments along the way and he doesn't, uh, he's made some choices. We, I think we can tell people this without giving anything away. Amanda. Well, a little bit about Amanda, but the main idea, Amanda is one of the uh, people he's watching. He has, um, he has 30 old fashioned, uh, what we call nowadays, I guess, cathode ray televisions, the, you know, the, the TVs we all used to watch, but until we all, replaced them with uh, flat screens 20 years ago. But it's, you know, old-fashioned TVs from the 70s and 80s and 90s, color TVs in a grid. And on these televisions, we're seeing uh, point-of-view lives played out in real time throughout the entire movie. Whenever we're in that room, we're seeing things happening with 30 different people. And sometimes and these are 30, couples, the pe- 30 of souls that he has um, <clears throat> that he's previously selected to play. be born. And uh, part of his job after he chooses who gets born is he monitors these individuals with the idea he can't really tell them what to do once they're on earth he has no way of communicating you know he could hit the glass but they're not going to hear him but what he can do is he can continue to evolve himself and he can learn what makes some of these individuals successful and what doesn't but 
and Amanda is one of them. She's a violinist who he's been following. And, and because she plays the violin, uh, the violin becomes a big part of our score. We, we have an amazing uh, musical score by a Brazilian composer named Antonio Pinto, which actually that uh, score is out already. It's on, um, um, you know, Apple, Spotify, uh, Amazon. You can buy a CD. You can actually buy the CD of Nine Days of Music. No now, kidding. Already. Um, and uh, the the music is a is a is a huge part of it. But what was interesting for me as the editor, eventually I was joined by uh, Jeff Betancourt as uh, as another editor in in the last months of the film. We did some work together, and Jeff was a great collaborator. And I also had um I had some uh, for assistants, uh, Phil Kimsey and Zach Boger, who became additional editors because their role on the film increased. And uh, I've been working with all those people since then uh, on different projects. But uh, if you think about the fact that you've got these TVs that are playing these point of view shots throughout the whole film, you have to think, well, well, where did those shots come from? You know, where did these shots of people getting up in the morning, going to bed, brushing their teeth, going to the beach, kissing their girlfriend, having dinner, riding up, where did all these shots come from? Well, we had to make them all. So what happened, we we shot the main part of the movie in August, uh, August into early September of 2019. And, but we shot the, what we call the point of view shots in late June into July, like a three week period. And we actually had three crews. We had a crew in Salt Lake city, which Edson and our main DP, White Garfield uh, operated with. And then we had another crew in Brazil, which is an old film school friend of uh, Edson's. He's from Edson is from Brazil. So, uh, one of his old friends was shooting in Brazil and we had another colleague shooting in, in California in LA at the same time. And as editor, once I got hired, I just started getting all this footage in from all three units, uh, this, this, and it was my job to turn all this footage into little one minute, two minute, three minute, little, uh, I like to call them stories. They didn't have uh, any narration they didn't have any added music because it's just real life, but they did have dialogue and talking. Sometimes they did have music because one of the characters in, on, on those TVs is actually uh, about to be married. And we actually see her wedding at, towards the end of the movie. And when you first see her, she's taking dance lessons. So you hear she's learning how to dance. So uh, it's all these little stories that Edson had invented in his head. And then there were, of course, some more abstract ones like just brushing teeth. And <clears throat> we were all invited to suggest ideas for these TVs. I managed to film a Spooky, our cat, uh, chasing a little green dot on our green sofa. And Spooky made it into the movie. Uh, I made sure of that. And uh, uh, But that's how I, I that, that became part of the whole production of the film because uh, uh, Jason Berman and some of the other producers uh, felt if we could play the TVs live as much as possible, it would give our actors, Winston and David Reistall, I didn't mention, who is actually um, Zazie's boyfriend in real life, and um, and all the characters, uh, Benedict Wong, a chance to actually interact with the televisions in real time, rather than just facing green screens like you would often have, in, again, in a Marvel movie or something. But for them to interact with the TVs, we would have to shoot this footage, and then we would have to essentially finish, we call it locking in editing. I would have to lock these stories with Edson before we could even put them on the TVs. So at that point, that's when I went to Salt Lake City. Um, in fact, uh, when I saw you, two years ago when I was editing some of these stories 
upstairs at Goldcrest and you came and visited me in the lobby, I think I told you at the time that I was in the middle of editing a frustrating scene. Just didn't, it didn't feel like it was going well for me. And I also knew I was going to Salt Lake City on Monday. So I was feeling a little pressure there, but we had a good talk anyway. I tried to like sort of, you know, sometimes when you've got a problem in the mm. back of your head, you know, it's hard to make that problem go away and just say, okay, I'm just going to relax for an hour and talk right. to Adam. And then I'll go upstairs and work on that. Tennis Compartmentalize. Scene. You know, um, and the funny thing is, you know, that scene I was worried about that night two years ago, it worked out fine in the end. I was right. just, you know, stressing over like nothing. Um, but I have to say the experience and then the experience of working on this movie was just joyous and wonderful every every single day. And uh, not only during production, because because of the nature of these televisions, I ended up being in Salt Lake City the whole summer. So they would be filming just, you know, 50 feet from my little edit room, which was just a little office in the corner with, you know, my laptop and a hard drive. That's what it was basically. And um, I had my, Zach came out uh, to work with me and Philip Kimsey came out and uh, we just, it was really exciting. I mean, I tried to keep my hours the same as them. They often would work like, for logistical reasons from like six at night to six in the morning. So I would try to do the same thing. So, you know, if Edson would have a question for me about a scene or I had a question for him, we could, we could talk to each other at three in the morning. Mm -hmm. I could like walk over to the set. I even remember one time walking over to the set in the middle of the night and they just done a, a wide shot conversation between the Winston Duke character and Benedict Wong plays character named Keo. It was a beautiful, moody, wide shot that went on for about three minutes. And um, Edson had planned to shoot close-ups of both of them, which certainly would have helped us in the editing later on. And normally you would, even as right. an ed editor, I would advocate for that. But the shot was so beautiful and it seemed so well performed. And uh, I think I came in and they were already doing like take seven or something. And I think I said to Edson, you know, that in my opinion, I think this is going to be better just like this. You know, if, you know, if you want to shoot the close-ups, you should shoot the close-ups. But I think it's beautiful like this. So maybe it'd be better shoot another, shoot two or three more of these wides at different tempos. And then I think we can make the scene out of that probably. And we did. We we never, that one we never regretted. And that that freed up time to shoot other things. So it was kind of helpful for me as an editor to be able to you know, try to uh, encourage Edson to say, you right. might not need to spend an hour doing these close-ups. You could shoot. Uh, right. Else. In other words, you have to keep moving the cameras, et cetera. Yeah. So you take more time as opposed to, you know, uh, just keep the camera where it is. And right. But, uh, and, and then, you know, we finished the film. Uh, what was great was that Antonio, who had been in Brazil during much of the music composition and process, and of course he had had to, record some pieces in advance for us too, because there's live playback of music in the film. But he eventually came up to New York to Goldcrest and had an edit room opposite us. At one point we had this large edit room with about nine of us in there. Uh, we had two additional assistants who were just putting in images on TVs, the ones we hadn't found so far. It was just, it was, it was really, it was pretty, it was an amazing experience. And then a month later we were at Sundance and, uh, uh we it was a great sundance there were some phenomenal films there that year we minari was there which my friend harry yoon cut and um this film worth by sarah colangelo which i believe will come out this fall was there uh that eliza hidman film was there that year um um i was getting it wrong a little bit never 
sometimes oh yeah uh, always yeah. never eat. i can't want if i if i remember what the first word is i can do it um that, that was a, <laughs> like that was a great film um, uh, yeah i don't know i always oh somehow I, I always feel i sound so unknowledgeable on these programs with yours no 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 um not at all no quite the opposite <laughs> quite the opposite we should mention like you know winston duke's character will goes through this kind of existential crisis in a sense during this story because he you know something that he 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 feels a special i don't know maybe you can just call it a connection of some sort with amanda who he he had already chosen chosen selected and who is has been living and he's been viewing her through her pov where as you said it like they're pov so the all the people that are on earth and born then when he follows tracks them on these tvs and um something happens to her which sort of throws him into a bit of a crisis mode and um and then you sort of wonder well will what's his story why is he an interviewer where did he go to earth and um, why didn't he go to earth and and then you know and benedict wong's character you learn was a soul and was supposed to gone you know been was supposed to be after not being selected there they disappear right i mean they just sort of yeah it's interesting about benny um he he just doesn't he sort of sticks around he just stuck around and that's it's funny the film really doesn't explain that does it because you know it is made clear at a certain point you know early in the film uh without giving anything away that that winston's character had lived once on earth Uh and that that was a requirement to become an interviewer and and that he's not the only other there's lots of interviewers right we meet another one briefly we meet one and yeah uh so he's just one in fact at one point he's he describes his job as being a cog in the wheel he's just part of some larger apparatus and i think what's interesting about the film is it doesn't take a stand at all in terms of religion it doesn't come down on uh the film is not about god per se or buddha or jesus it's it it is to some people a spiritual film but apparently not everybody you know everyone well you know religion and spirituality are not necessarily they they can be they can be mutually exclusive with spirituality and religion i mean that's the of course we know that one can be this is like another explanation for how souls which we we think of as a religious sort of concept but in a way it's We've learned that you know souls and soulfulness is is maybe is 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 a separate thing from religion. Religion isn't you know doesn't necessarily you don't have to be religious to be spiritual. Um, no, that's true, and, and that's, that's what true. the film explores, kind it of does. you know through the they're saying that it's uh, you know I think religion is a construct made to explain spirituality. Perhaps I don't know, but it's. Um, you know, it's a man-made construct. Right. So, And uh, I, th- I guess that, that's definitely true. But I think you're right that in the film seems to have a plot, which is Winston's um, putting these five candidates through a series of tests to determine who should get born. But in terms of narrative momentum or emo- emotional momentum, it's really all Will and Winston Duke, this, this existential crisis of this person who is on the exterior, quite cold and commanding. And um, uh, he speaks with a very authoritative voice uh, he seems to be very much in control of this situation, but you, as the movie goes on, you see that he's inside privately unraveling. Yeah, and uh, the movie is largely about 
how he deals with that and how Keo, who is is his best friend in this universe. And you do mention that's true about the Benny Wong character that even I hadn't thought about. And there's things, even when I read the script, I never asked these questions. It's true. The, the souls you meet, it's all, we're told they're all going to disappear you know, either by after nine days have passed or even in some cases sooner. But uh, you're right. Benny is this weird, uh, intermediate character where he's not allowed to be an interviewer because he didn't he never lived on earth but somehow he managed to survive the disappearance process funny thing is you know people get nominated for things for all kinds of reasons uh and a lot of the work i do is a little more naturalistic than you know some of the bigger hollywood things but this is a film which actually is not naturalistic at all and in fact has a lot of editing because on any frame you see you're not just seeing the edit of that scene, you know, editing between Winston and Zazie and Benny Wong, but you're also seeing those 30 images in the background, which I had edited a month earlier and which I helped organize how, the, where they're going to go. And then meta editing. Yeah. What? Meta editing. Meta editing. And, you know, there's another aspect of the film, which I think we can tell people about without giving anything away. <clears throat> We've mentioned that uh, if a soul doesn't make it, uh, they disappear. Right. But because Winston really does have this warm heart, he likes to give someone a, a parting gift. One of those non-selected folks. And, and uh, yeah, he soul. says, I'm sorry, you're not selected. You're not going to go to Earth. And, you know, very often there's tears involved and it's like, I'm sorry, but uh, I, I can't select you. But. I'm going to give you this piece of yellow paper and I would like you to write on the paper something you've seen on those monitors, which has inspired you in the last few days, an experience you would have liked to have had on earth had you gone to earth, which of course is an awfully bittersweet thing. Like, well, I'd like to ride a bicycle through a forest or I'd like to go to a beach knowing that this person is never really going to get to go to a beach or ride a bicycle. They're not going to get to live. And then what he does with Keo is he creates a, a, a beautiful fantasy for these people where they believe they really are on a beach and or on a bicycle and he uses it with video projections so of course these were other things that had to get filmed by our units and cut together by me and my assistants yeah and in some cases having like four panels playing at the same time so it's like a split screen with four images except they're playing on movie projectors which are being moved around in space and it's like there, there are certain things on a technological level that we did because remember, there's almost there are visual effects in the film, but most of these are not visual effects. This is happening in camera, as they say. I still don't really know how we pulled it off. Um, I do know that um, near the end of the process, we knew we were going to need a lot of extra shots of televisions and hands pressing uh, VCRs because VCRs are a big part of them. a lot of old school technology. And I just knew as an editor, I'm going to need times where I'm going to need that finger pressing the go button or the eject button or the remote control because there's also a projection room where he watches scenes so we're just going to need a lot of details and the producers were kind enough to let me uh, work with uh, one of the other cinematographers um, in the television room uh, all night long. I think we had two nights of this where we just stayed up all night and just filmed every single TV in as many ways as we could. Three TVs together, four TVs, five TVs, single TVs, just knowing that 
at any time, this is something we could go to in the mm-hmm. film. Or we would have Bill Skarsgård in the movie writing something down and then we go to his, he's watching the TVs and we needed to have his point of view. And maybe we hadn't managed to get his shot of the TVs, what he was seeing on the day we shot him. So we got then. So it was, um, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was, I was more embedded with production than I usually am. Right. Uh, as an editor. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You know, it, it would, the, the roles kind of overlapped a lot more than they, uh, I don't, I don't, I didn't get any credit, like something like second unit director or anything like that, but I guess that's what I was doing a little bit of along well, with maybe crazy. That's your next. Maybe oh, that's I don't next. know. Who knows? I love what I do, but we, we also had this great guy, Quasi Collison, who, um, uh, was our post-production supervisor and he was super helpful along with me in organizing all these additional shoots. And we got to the point where when we were finishing the movie in um, December, we realized there were only a couple of shots we could use for the film that we didn't have. And it was just a couple of inserts of Winston's hand writing some uh, names on paper Mm -hmm. for the beginning of the movie. We thought we could use a few more names written down. So we arranged to have that shot. That's the only thing we did. That's the only thing we've uh, realized we could use. And it's nice to get to the end of a movie and, and realize that you actually have everything you need for the film and that, uh, and then, and to work with like a really passionate team of collaborators. Like I mentioned, Jeff Bedencourt, who came in to edit alongside me and uh, Edson, of course, and all of our producers, um, Matt Marie, Laura, Jason, uh, a number of executive producers, uh, all kinds of it was a, it was an it was a phenomenal team well, one of my happiest to, yeah people will can uh will see it it'll be available uh it'll be in theaters on the 30th of july 30th, 30th uh in new york and la i think in new york will be angelica theater which is also uh, a lot of people don't know this but and the angelica is actually one of the most profitable independent cinemas in the whole country i didn't know that. like it, yeah that's a place you want to be if you've got an independent film Alrighty. Listen, I'm excited that all these films are coming out. All these independent films are coming out. And uh, honestly, I'm, I think it's been wonderful. I, these movies like F9 and um, Black Widow, um, I consider to be, well, there used to be a term in the industry, like stars, like lost leader now. So I'm using it wrongly because a lost right. leader would be, you'd get someone into the store and uh, the store wouldn't make any money from this particular product. Like, you know, they're giving away, uh, you know, hair dryers for a dollar, but it gets you into the store and then you buy things. So these um, franchise movies are, they're actually kind of the opposite. You know, uh, everyone wants to see them. They're making uh, millions and millions of dollars and people are going back to movie theaters. Right. And that's what's important to me. Yeah. So I'm hopeful that you know, what, as right. people get used to seeing a big movie like that in a movie theater, they'll also see something like Josh's movie in a movie theater or for nine sure. days or the evening hour, you know, or, and they've Definitely. been, uh, they've been seeing Heidi's movie. Uh, I carry yeah. me all over the country for over a month already. And yep. um, we're, we're the same distributor as Heidi, uh, Sony pictures classics, you know, which Perfect. is great distributor for us. Right. Wonderful people. And uh, we're very lucky to have them. And um, 
And uh, if uh, I, if any, if I don't know when your show goes out, Adam, but if it goes out by next weekend, uh, Ed Zenoda and Tony Hale are going to be doing live in person Q and A's in Los Angeles okay. at the yeah. uh, at the Landmark. Um, Very good. It, um, and I don't know if there's anything special planned for New York yet, but um, I'll be around the Angelica myself, hanging out. I'll be hanging okay. out. So I'll see you soon. Okay. Uh, in person. And thank you for the time. Yeah. It's a, you gave me a very generous time allotment today. Well, anytime, <laughs> all, all the time. I'll see you soon. Your senses will become unbearably sharper and stronger. <laughs> it's your new beginning. Never remember me or anything else that happened in this place. Ah. But you still be you. Every single day, someone hurts someone else. Every single day, someone takes someone else's life. Why are you focusing on that? Why are you not focusing on that? You've been here a few days, but you've lived every second. Ah. Are you afraid? Of what? Both of those segments, of course, can be watched on the FilmWax YouTube channel if you visit youtube.com slash filmwaxradio. And don't forget our Patreon account at patreon.com slash filmwaxradio. For as little as $3 a month, you can support FilmWax and be part of the FilmWax community, which, my goodness, my goodness, what an opportunity. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a week with a brand new episode. Until then, take care of yourselves and the ones you love.